Please join me in the prayer for illumination. Gracious God, as we turn to your word for us, may your spirit rest upon us. Help us to be steadfast in our hearing, in our speaking, in our believing, and in our living. Amen. The reading is from Luke. Once when Jesus was praying by himself, the disciples joined him, and Jesus asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? The disciples answered, John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others that one of the ancient prophets has come back to life. Jesus asked them, And what about you? Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, The Christ sent from God. Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell this to anyone. He said the human one must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and the legal experts, and be killed and be raised on the third day. Jesus said to everyone, all who want to come after me must say no to themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. All who want to save their lives will lose them but all who lose their lives because of me will save them. What advantage do people have if they gain the whole world for themselves, yet perish or lose their lives? The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I'm so glad to be with you in worship today and in this video format. I appreciate the invitation from your senior pastor today, Teresa, uh, to bring a word for our worship, and, and I'm glad to be with you. In the short video conversation that Teresa and I recorded earlier this week, she mentioned a book by Margaret Wheatley called Who Do We Choose to Be? I said and noted that, that Wheatley talks about the crisis moment that we're all living in and its impact on institutions and big things like climate change. Wheatley believes that at this point in the life cycle of our society, we've missed the window to fundamentally change those things. Based on her reading of history, she thinks it's too late to turn those things around. She does say it's worth continuing to show up in those places, but that if fundamental change and reorientation by our own efforts is the goal, we are going to be disappointed. I figure that kind of message might find some pushback in a church like University, and I'm not here to argue that part of her point. Whether fixing the relationship with the climate is possible or not, we do know it's important, and we know it's hard. Uphill both ways. And when things are really hard, we have to be clear about what we're doing and why, lest we lose our way or fold up under the pressure because even in as deeply a principled place as university, we can forget what the point of things is. And COVID has just made that worse, disrupting the way we've always done it in a distressing, disorienting fashion. I once knew a church that ran a fundraiser all summer long to help pay off their building. It took lots of volunteers, which meant that it was hard to get people to help with other programs, like summer programming for children or youth. Another church put on a, a Christmas pageant every year, complete with live camels and a singing Christmas tree. And it basically hogtied their energy and their budget for the whole year. A very different church 
regularly allowed undocumented immigrants to sleep in their sanctuary, and they remodeled the space with them in mind. Yet another church collected $15,000 and leveraged it to pay off medical debt totaling $1.4 million. We like starting with doing in the church, especially if you've got some activist in you and you see things that need fixing. But there's a business model of all things, the Deming model, that encourages us to start from a different place. It's pretty logical, actually. Uh, It describes manufacturing in three stages, the input or the raw material, the throughput or what you do to the raw material, and the output or the thing you're trying to produce. Somebody some years ago applied that model to the church and noted that we are really good at the first two stages. We love input, things you can count, buildings and people, books and chairs and money. And we really love throughput, doing stuff with the input, worship and Sunday school, vacation Bible school, food pantry, even a protest march. In the church, metrics on those things are basically what we've always asked for reports on at the end of the year. How many of these did you have? And how many times did you do this? What we've been much less clear about in many cases is the intended output. And that's what you need to know in order to build the system according to the model. You can't design a system to make folding chairs and then hope to produce fertilizer with it instead. You start with clarity about what you're aiming at before you decide what to do. And that's the part we haven't done so well as the church. Much of what we do in church has been modeled or passed down to us. Some of it actual faith practices and some of it not. But all of our church input and throughput can masquerade as our reason for being. We have this fundraiser because it's how we pay for our building. We have vacation Bible school because it's what we do for kids in the summertime. We have worship because that's what church is. People coming to the building on Sunday or watching online with music and Bible and prayers. And hopefully it makes people happy, which can be as close as we get to an output, people doing the thing on a continual basis and being generally satisfied with it. When we look around at the dizzying context of our day, though, I'm sure you'll agree that vague satisfaction is a pretty lame foundation for a church. It's not enough. Not enough for us in our heart of hearts. Not enough for the urgent brokenness and need of the world around us. Vague satisfaction doesn't match up in particular with the life of Jesus Christ. We are not manufacturers, and we can't just lay a business model over the top of what we do as a church. But we can use it as a lens to wonder about why we're here. What do we hope is the result of all this effort? And that question, when asked in the presence of God, leads us to a deeper question, one that asks not what do we do, but who are we? And that takes us to our scripture passage. We're in the ninth chapter of Luke, and if you look back at your Bibles, Jesus has just blessed and broken five loaves of bread and two fish and used them to feed 5,000 men, plus an untold number of women and children, as usual. Jesus was a doer, 
and you can count the input and the throughput in that story. His friends up to now have seen him do some amazing things. Healings and teachings and more teachings and healings and miracles. Here, the scene shifts to Jesus praying, recharging after all that work. He's got his friends nearby, and he's thinking through some things. So he asks his friends this reflective question. Who do the crowds say that I am? And that one is easy to answer. People clearly think he's somebody important. Elijah, John the Baptist, one of the prophets. He can hardly go anywhere without them wanting something from him. But as is so often the case, Jesus' first question just tees up the real question. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, who normally gives the exact wrong answer, this time gets it right. You are the Messiah of God. This is the first time in Luke that one of Jesus' people proclaims his true identity. But it's not the first time we've heard it. In earlier chapters, we as readers of this story have already heard that Jesus is the Son of God from the mouth of an angel talking to Mary before he was even born, from the devil tempting him in the wilderness, and from demons as Jesus is casting them out. The angel, the devil, demons, all these cosmic beings know who Jesus is. It's just his friends who are having to catch up. As the disciples begin to see Jesus's identity, it reveals something else very important, the why or foundation behind what he does. The Messiah of God, the Son of God, this person represents God and acts not just as intermediary, but as exemplar, a sign or symbol in the most powerful sense of the word, where something material points to a truth that is much larger. Jesus is the embodiment of who God is, the scripture tells us. So when he heals forgotten people and treats women with dignity, when he calms the storm and blesses the poor and speaks life into the face of death, it's not just this guy. His presence, his words, his actions all point at a great, the greater truth of his identity. His life points at the one who makes him who he is. When he does it, it means God does it, and that's who God is. If these things are true for Jesus, then hopefully they are also true for us as his followers. When we gather for worship, it's not just what we always do. It's a time when we remember and strengthen our kinship with the divine. When we offer hospitality to someone who needs it, it's because Jesus taught us that we are kin to them too. When we listen and respect what people say about their own identities, it's in part because Christ blessed and called and sat down to eat with every kind of person. He invites us, so we invite others. Our embodied life and action should point at or reveal the one who made us who we are. Who you are makes all the difference when you're deciding what you're going to do. It turns the Deming model on its head or maybe on its side. This is where we start, cultivating our identity in Christ, not because we're special, but because God has a will and we know we're called to align our lives with it. Then we wonder together, 
What do we feel called to produce in this world? What kind of fruit should this tree be growing? I think of the, the stained glass window in the sanctuary. What kind of community would look like our identity embodied in this place at this moment? Is there something we need to do differently, stop doing or start doing to make room for that community to be born and to flourish? What does a community like that do? What difference should it make? And how will we know if we're getting there? I know you already have some idea of the answer to these questions. You've long claimed an identity and chosen a path that opens wide the door and the table. Y'all means all. But the problem is that this isn't a one and done kind of thing. Because the world is hard and we are often hard too. In our scripture, Peter calls Jesus the Messiah, but then Jesus gets really real. He says that his path as Messiah will lead through suffering and death, and that any who want to follow him will have to deny themselves and take up a cross. And he doesn't mean the kind we wear around our neck. One reason having a clear identity is so important is that it's going to get tested, especially when you're doing Jesus stuff. Love and openness and dignity and compassion sound nice, but not everyone is going to agree on what those mean. Not even in the church community, not all the time. There are terrible, nasty fights going on out there right now over exactly these values. Fights that threaten to undo us. Jesus got into some nasty fights too, with a particularly ugly one at the end. And he told his people they could expect the same. Suffering, rejection, death. Whatever the cost, he said, deny the part of you that stands in the way of love. And that means that that's who you are going to be. Because that's who I am, he says. Pick up your cross of humility and willingness. Unclench your grasp. And give yourself to this brave way. It's hard. And then, he says, there's the third day. His listeners, his friends, could not have known what he was talking about. They'd stopped listening after suffering and death. They didn't understand even when the actual third day came. We do not understand that the third day is coming, and we've read the Easter story lots of times. But it is coming. The trouble we encounter for the sake of love the hard sacrifices we make for the sake of the gospel, these lead to new life, even if that new life doesn't look like what we expected. It is easy to be afraid, and there is a lot to be afraid of. But we know Sunday's coming. We know it not just because the Bible says so, but because if we'll just stop and remember, it has happened to us. We who testify, whose lives have been saved and changed we who have found courage and creativity and love where it wasn't before, we are the proof of the resurrection. We are the people of the living God because God has made it so. I truly do not know what is to become of us as a nation, as a global community or a state or a city or a church. Our ability to work together has unraveled at all but the most local, immediate levels, and even there, sometimes, it's not possible. 
white people's pernicious refusal to accept that racism is systemic in our society, our unwillingness to respect and cherish the LGBTQ community, these are sinful and deadly. Our destruction of the health of the earth is terrifying with new unimaginable consequences every day. And alongside this, our community, the people around us, have swung to a place where many of them are just way too smart to go to church. Some have legitimately been hurt by the church. Some think it's just a waste of time. And then there's COVID. There aren't easy answers to these things. No simple 10-point business model for success. But we can start with what we do know. We can listen to the voices around us. Who do people say that we are? We can check inside, who do we believe God is calling us to be? How can we help each other choose that identity daily? That's what will help us turn together and know the next right step to take, the next right thing to do. It will help us know what to teach and where, what to sing and with whom, how to pray and share a meal, how to speak out, how to hold silence how much money to give, and how to spend it. Each one's outcome is going to be a little different, but I can imagine hope and home, sanity and safety and justice in tangible ways in real people's lives. So choose today to give your life for the sake of love because of who you are. Choose to belong to the one whose name the cosmos itself proclaims, the Messiah of God, the Lord of life. Amen.